This morning we are um, continuing in our uh, series on the book of Haggai, um, and so uh, for those that have been uh, following along, we are on Haggai's second vision, um, and that is in chapter two of Haggai. We're going to be looking at just the first nine verses of that chapter, uh, and I would like to uh, start just by reading those aloud now. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the peace that you give us. God, we thank you for your might, for your promise, for your faithfulness, and for all the ways that you have guided us through your word. And I pray this morning that we would diligently look into the way that you spoke to your people in a certain time, in a certain place, and that we might get to know you and encounter you and know your character, and that it would change us today and this week here and now in the way that we go about and minister and work and love. And I pray that in everything you would be glorified in this place and that your name would be lifted high. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So this series we're calling Build This House because of the, the mandate, the edict that Cyrus issued in 538 B.C., that said, hey, come back, return to Jerusalem, and build this house. And we're following this remnant of people led by Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the priest out of exile and back into the promised land in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And they do that because, as we started a couple weeks ago, exile was never meant to be the end of the story. We followed that up last week as we delved into uh, chapter one of Haggai, and we learned, you know what, sometimes God is very harsh and he pronounces woes and judgment, but sometimes we just, instead of scolding, need a gentle 
nudge. And we see that in the way that Haggai is telling the people, uh, God telling the people through Haggai, rather, that, hey, it's time to get back to work. I'm inviting you to resume this work that stalled out for over 15 years. And we'll talk about that this morning. This morning, what I want to get across and what I think God has for us in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is this idea that it is God's presence that makes his house great. It is God's presence that makes his house great. And to understand the context a little bit more of this second vision we see in Haggai, we have to go back a little bit in the story. We have to return to this idea of the good old days. And maybe even if I say that phrase aloud, there are various pictures that enter your mind of what the good old days really is. Maybe that's back 10 years. Maybe that's back many, many more years for some of us. Oh, the good old days. When were those good old days, by the way? And, that, and everybody might have a different answer for that. And I think the good old days, if we're honest, hinge a lot on our perspective about how really good they were, and oftentimes we look back with a little bit of rose-colored glasses at the good old days, and maybe we can read into some things that were going on that might not necessarily be there. Well, the people of Israel are just as susceptible to that practice of thinking of things as the good old days, and maybe not always putting them into their proper perspective. So let's just take a look first at Haggai chapter 2. If you're not there, I invite you to make your way to Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to be going through verses 1 through 9, but we're also going to be going elsewhere, and I'll direct you uh, when that time comes. So the first, first thing that I want to do, I just want to kind of go through verse by verse and point out a few things that I would like to, to point your attention to. Um, and the first is this. Right off the bat in verse 1, we are given the exact date. Just like in the other visions, um, we know exactly when this is. Remember that all of Haggai takes place within like a four-month window in the fall of 520 B.C., Initially, in chapter 1, verse 1, we see that, uh, August 29th, and then a few weeks later, as they do actually resume the building, that's a, few, uh, a little bit later in September 21st, and almost four weeks later, as they have begun this rebuilding project, they're in the middle of this, and Haggai comes again with this word of encouragement, almost a month, almost a month in, on October 17th. So that's when this is coming to them, in the middle of this project that they have begun rebuilding the house of the Lord again. The second thing I want to point out is in verse 2, we're told who the audience is. Speak now to Zerubbabel, by the way, great baby name, okay, that's free, just so you know, I'm just saying, I hope that that makes the final list, but speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Jehozadak, um, or excuse me, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, the governor, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people. 
okay? So this is both for the leadership, but for everyone too. And that's important because in the next couple of visions that we look at in the next couple of weeks, that's not necessarily the case. So this one is for everybody that's working. Hey, you leaders, listen up. But all the people working, all the sons, all the everyone, listen up too. This one is for everyone. And then he says something kind of weird in verse 3. He says something a little bit odd. He says, hey, you guys that still remember that old temple, the one that was here over 50 years ago that was destroyed by the Babylonians, you older crowd, look at this building project that's going on. Look at the progress that you've made. Does this look like garbage to you? Does this look like nothing in your eyes? And that's kind of a, a strange question to ask if you don't know the context. And that's why this morning we need to go back and we need to get into the weeds a little bit on a part of the story that I previously glossed over. We need to go back to the year 536, over 15 years previously, and talk about why it was that this building project stalled out in the first place. So turn with me, if you would. We'll, we'll come back to, to Haggai, too. Uh, but turn with me, if you would, to Ezra chapter 3. It's about 40, 45% of the way through your Bible um, in, in the Old Testament still. Ezra chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 13. Now remember, the edict of Cyrus came in the year 538 B.C., and it took them a little bit, several months, to get everything together, to gather up resources, to figure out who was going. And it's two years later, they have amassed thousands of people, a remnant coming out of Persia, back into Judah. They are there in Jerusalem, and they have begun the process of rebuilding this temple. In fact, they have cleared enough of the area. They have the spot. They have built an altar. They're able to celebrate a very important Jewish holiday, the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. And they are there celebrating this now as they start the work on the foundation. And that's where we find them in Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Let me just start reading through this. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Let me just pause here for a moment and point out a couple of things. First off, those of you who are very familiar uh, with the intricate Levitical law, first, get a hobby, okay? Um, way too much time on your hands if you are familiar with it. Um, second, if you are familiar with it, let me just say, you probably noticed, hey, wait a second, wasn't the Levitical age supposed to be 30 years old and upward, and here they're saying 20 years old and upward? Very good, yes, that's right. Eagle eyes, nothing gets past you. 
When we say they appointed Levites from 20 years old and upward, that is a change from the historic precedent set in the Levitical law. If we go all the way back to the books of Moses, back before any temple existed, while it was just the tabernacle, this tent, as they wandered around in the wilderness, there was still functions of, uh, of their worship. They still had services. They still celebrated festivals and celebrations, and so they needed certain things. And these Levites were appointed 30 years old and upward. And yet, over time, during the reign of King David, and again here now as the exiles are returning, we see that age lowered from 30 down to 25, and then down to 20 years old and upward. Now, most experts think the reason for that is just a diminishing pool of qualified Levites to work in the temple worship. There's just fewer and fewer qualified people to choose from, so we need to lower that age a little bit to expand our pool. And so that's what we see here at 20 years old and upward. The second thing I want to point out in this uh, set of verses here is this idea of them building with their sons. We see the leadership, we see the, the, the heads of houses, the older folks, the folks that are probably uh, remembering the former temple. They are there rebuilding, but they're doing that with their sons. The text goes out of its way to emphasize this with his sons, Cadmiel and his sons, Hinnadad and his sons, uh, uh, Jeshua and his sons. And I want you to pay attention to that. I want you to notice that. Let's keep reading in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This is this incredible thing. This is a celebration that has not happened for decades. They're coming and they're laying the foundation and celebrating the Feast of Booths. They're singing songs that are written directly for this. If that, if that, uh, that verse there, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever, if that sounds familiar to you, it should. We sing that song and even then when they are singing it, it is a 500-year-old song written as part of the, the fifth book of Psalms, which is kind of like the, the hymnal for the Old Testament temple. These were the songs of praise, the, the psalms of ascents. They were written specifically for times like this. Worship in the temple to praise God, to thank him for the work that he has done. And they come together, and they are having this, I mean, we haven't done this in years, and we're laying the foundation. We've dreamt about this for decades. It's finally happening. We're high-fiving each other. We're singing this song, even responsively, you'll hear it, it said. Um, and if you read the text of Psalm 136, 26 times it is like the, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Uh, the God of God, the Lord of lords, his steadfast love endures forever. It evokes 
helps uh, Israel, who has brought us up out of Egypt. His steadfast love endures forever. He topples kings. His steadfast love endures forever. 26 times this psalm reminds the people of this idea of who God is. I told you last week about this verse in the Old Testament that some, some have called the uh, John 3.16 of the Old Testament. As they are coming out of Egypt, as they are being um, liberated from slavery, wandering in the desert, God himself shows up and introduces himself as this God who is unending in his patience and steadfast love. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The reason that they can sing about that is because God does not change. That is who he is, his steadfast, abounding, patient love will remain towards his people. And that's what they're singing about. They're singing about this thing. Isn't God so faithful? Now, wouldn't it be great if the story ended there (laughs) and they all lived happily ever after and the building project continued and no one had any issue? Well, it doesn't. (laughs) Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. What happens immediately after that is chronicled in the next part of this chapter. Verse 12 of Ezra chapter 3. But many of the priests and Levites, the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What happens is, some of the people, not all of them, some of the people, the leadership, the, the, the heads of houses, the fathers, old men, I, I love the way the text is like, do you know who I'm, ta- you know what I'm, ta- okay, gray hair, think old, okay, hearing aids, this is who we're talking The people who are old enough to remember the temple that was there over 50 years ago, and for some of these people it has been 50, 60, or even 70 years since they were in Jerusalem and saw and participated in the worship in that temple, and some of them are going, oh, it's not like the good old days. (laughs) It's not like it was back in my day. Unless you think that the weeping is, oh, they're just, it's a a good cry, right? No, 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 the the text is fairly explicit. We understand that this is a weeping that that is bitterness, and we even see that in the next chapter as other people kind of leverage that, take advantage of that. What happens is we are rebuilding the temple. We are obeying God. We are celebrating this feast that we haven't in decades. We come together and we sing one of these beautiful psalms of ascents that hasn't been used in years about God's steadfast love that will last forever and doesn't change. And some of the old folks there just go, yeah, but it's not like it used to be. It's not like the good old days. And what ends up happening is that 
in the next chapter, we see some of the people of the land, some of the adversaries we talked about a few weeks ago. Some of them are from Judah that, it, that stayed and remained, but a lot of them are also uh, the, the descendants of the Assyrian and northern kingdom folks, what we would later in the New Testament call Samaritans, who are usually at odds with the Jews. It's those people that come and approach these same old guys, the heads of houses, the fathers, the guys that remember, and they start some dissension. They start some, like, whispers and, like, oh, you know, kids, these, oh, they don't do it right. Oh, you know, oh, can you imagine the state of things nowadays? And they're, yeah, yeah. And they, they start arguing, and there arises so much contention and disagreement that the work stalls. The project stops, and it gets put on a shelf completely unfinished for over 15 years. This, by the way, was just the foundation laid. I don't know what the, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever looked at a freshly poured concrete slab and gone, that's just not going to cut it. Oh, it's not like the old one, you know. <laughs> Back in my day, what we used to do. <laughs> and, the, and the work stalls out because they can't agree on this. Now, I, I want to point out there is good reason to think this temple is different from the other one. There are a lot of differences, and some of them really are kind of sad and bittersweet. For example, in this temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant. In the new temple, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. The last time we saw that was during the reign of Hezekiah. We have lost that. We don't know where it is unless it's in that warehouse in Indiana Jones, but uh, that's another... You guys are going to think all I do is watch movies with all the references that I've... Anyway, uh, um, there is no the hoshen, the, uh, the, the breastplate that the, the chief priest would wear as he enters the, the Holy of Holies with the umen and the thumen. They don't have that anymore. Uh, there's the sacred fire uh, and certain uh, holy oil, anointing oil. They don't have any of that. But they do still have a lot of the, the, the gold inlay, the censers, the, the, the basin, the bronze basin. There is still an altar. There is still a holy of holies. Um, in the old temple, it was, it was uh, walled off. There was a big wall uh, that separated the holy of holies. In the new temple, there's a big curtain, a kind of thick, thick velvety curtain. Uh, with, like when Jesus dies and the, the curtain is torn in two, that's the curtain. Um, and it's also, it's a lot bigger. You can even see on this one, the comparison is such that, hey, this new temple is a lot bigger. There's more court space for women and for the Gentiles to come and participate in worship. And, and it's good and different and just not like the other temple. And so there's, there is a reason why some of the old people are going, it's not like it used to be. That's true. It is different. It is not like it used to be. And thus, the question that God prompts through the prophet Haggai in chapter 2, verse 3 of Haggai, when he says, as you look at this temple, is it as nothing in your eyes? He is talking to those people that still remember the old temple, and he's asking them, does this just look like nothing to you? And he's evoking the whole reason that the project stalled out over 15 years before this in the middle of their rebuilding effort. 
but it is not to chastise them, it's to encourage them. And we see that as we read on in verse 4, chapter 2 of Haggai. He says, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And it's that reminder, it's that repeated promise. Don't be afraid. Is it not like it used to be? Sure. Is it not like the good old days? Of course. But don't worry. Don't you worry your pretty little head about that. Why? Because I am here. And if you want to know what is going to make this temple awesome, it is not the gold, it's not the ark, it's not the breastplate. It's me, says God. It is God's presence and only God's presence that makes his house great. It is God saying, I am still here. That has not changed, and that will not change. And for that reason, no fear. I am still in your midst, working, moving, because it's my presence that make this house great. We also see the beginning, the first time of six times in this little passage when this phrase is repeated, declares the Lord of hosts. Six times we get this. This is something that the the text is emphasizing here when we see this, this name used. The Lord of hosts is a name that God uses that just means the God that commands the armies of heaven. The God who leads a legion and then some of angels. And it is his way of saying, I am mighty. Whatever is happening, I'm going to win. Victory is certain. Whatever I say, you can take that to the bank because victory is certain. That is what God is reminding us when he calls himself the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew word here is uh, Jehovah Sabaoth. Okay, and maybe some of, speaking of 500-year-old hymns, maybe some of you when you, were, when you were young sang that in a Luther hymn, Lord Saboth, his name from me. I had no idea what it meant, but I sang it enthusiastically. That's what it means, the Lord who commands the armies of heaven, who is so mighty, victory is a certainty. It is guaranteed. And that's what God is saying when he makes this promise. I am here, I am dwelling in your midst, have no fear, why I'm the general of the armies of heaven and it's gonna happen. Because it's God's presence and only God's presence that makes his house great. Let's keep reading in verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 
he is promising what he will surely do as the Lord of hosts. As he says, I am going to move in this place. My glory is going to shake the heavens and the earth. Why? Because I'm here and that's all that matters. If you are so focused on the basin and the ephod and the ark and the gold and the silver, that's all mine anyway. I'm here. And it's so easy to look at all of the stuff and forget the whole point of the temple is to encounter the living God. And he says, that hasn't changed. I'm still here, moving, working in your midst, and I'm going to shake this place with my glory, declares the Lord of hosts. The whole point is that it's not about the stuff. It's about God's present and encountering his glory when you come together to worship. And it is this idea that is so true, like this temple that they are building now is still standing hundreds of years later when Paul says this on the Areopagus to a bunch of Athenians. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all to mankind, life and breath and everything. Sometimes we get a little too focused on the walls and the property and the furniture, and it is about God himself dwelling in this place because it is God's presence that makes his house great and only God's presence. And even, I love this little part where, where there's this, this nod to exactly how he is fulfilling his promises. When he says, the treasures of all nations will come in, that's a nod to his promised Messiah. Maybe you know that, that, uh, that Christmas hymn that we sing, come desire of all the nations. That is a quote because this is a messianic prophecy. And we'll get more into that in a couple of weeks as we look at later visions. But God is saying, look, this is all about me and my presence, and sometimes you need to just ignore some of the other stuff. Well, so what? How does this apply to us? What does this have to do with us here and now? God tells them, hey, the later days are going to be even better than the former days. Well, he's talking about that second temple, and even that one's long gone, right? Does that still apply to us? Well, I would argue, just like the people of Israel had a mandate to build his house, we too have a mandate to build his kingdom. And as we think about that, sometimes it gets real easy to focus on too much of the other stuff. Sometimes it gets real easy to look at the object of our worship and always compare, well, that's not how we did it in the old days. And we forget it is still the same God moving and working, pouring out his spirit in our presence and saying, have no fear, I am still with you. And so, I have just a couple of application points for us to consider as we think about this and focusing on God's presence in our worship, in all that we do. The first is this. 
We should invest in younger leadership. We should do this in two different ways. Um, I think that we need to be investing in younger leadership now. Do you remember um, when they started building the temple and it was, uh, um, you know, um, the Levites who were there and they had to get younger so that there were enough qualified people? I would argue that there is something similar happening in the, the church in North America now. There is an age group that is largely going away from church and not as well represented as other generations. And it's mine. <laughs> I come from a generation that has seen huge dips in their involvement in church. Millennials, people my age, people born between 1980 and 1995-6-ish, depending on which Wikipedia article you read or whatever, we are walking away from church and largely not coming back. And the church needs to be able to respond accordingly. You know who is coming back to church? Gen Z. The generation after mine is better represented in the church. They are showing up in ways that my generation has let the church down in some ways. Now, I, I, I want to pause for a minute and clarify Church attendance is not everything. People have varied and complicated reasons for coming or not going to church, and church attendance is not the end-all, be-all of your spiritual maturity or how good of a Christian you are, how many jewels in your crown or whatever, okay? Uh, I was chatting with one of you uh, even this week um, that said all through high school or ju junior high, you know, I had seven straight years of perfect attendance award in Sunday school and zero relationship with God, okay? So it can happen, all right? All that I am saying is those that are coming and investing in the community that is meant to say, here is where we come together and we revel in God's presence in our lives and we are sent out from here to minister in that same faithful love towards the world, my generation, there's, there's a lack there and we need to be willing to invest a little bit in younger leadership. Uh, a few months ago, uh, the LT met and, you know, the discussion came up about new leadership team and um, how we were investing. And it is so easy to go, okay, who, who do we know that is mature, wise, has experience, and is grounded in God's word? There's a whole bunch of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s that leap to mind. Because, of course, there's tons of knowledge and experience and wisdom there. But I was also so blessed to hear the LT say, yeah, but are there others? Are there people younger than that that we could also get because we need their perspective too? Because they too are a valuable asset to the function of the worship that we do here as a church. And that's huge. But not just investing now in younger leadership. We also ought to be investing in younger leadership for the future. When we think of people who are like the Levites, tasked with the functions of our worship, and how do we arrange things so that we are discipling people, and we are together enjoying and reveling in the glory of God in his presence here, 
People do not just stroll into church one day in their 40s with a deep conviction and love for God's people and a wonderful biblical foundation. It is developed, it is instilled, it is discipled into them, I would argue, even now downstairs and upstairs in what we are doing with our children. That has to be cultivated. That has to be invested in. And we as a church would be absolutely crazy if we were not focusing on how are we investing in young people. How are we making it so that children grow up with a deep love for God's word and his community? Um, I worked with teenagers for a long time, and uh, I, I, uh, I am always so impressed with them. Um, within every, you know, 15-year-old, there is both, like, a 35-year-old and a 5-year-old. Um, it's way, <laughs> if you have teenagers, you absolutely know this. There are times where you're like, oh, man, that's, wow, you are just looking at the world and thinking critically about this in a wonderful way. That's incredible. And then the next moment, it's like, oh, fart joke, and pick up your socks, and, like, you know, all of that stuff. And, and there is both and. But I am telling you, I am filled with hope whenever I get around teenagers because I got to tell you, I am not worried about the future of the church. No fear because God is still moving in our midst and young people are absolutely a big part of that. But we ought to do this not just at church, but we should do this in our homes too. Are you investing in your children in a way that instills deep love for God's people and the functions of our worship and the community of God's people as well? Do they see you when you are doing your your devotions or praying or hanging around other Christians? Do they understand why? Are you discipling your kids in a way that shows them this is why we value this? The second thing, in addition to investing in younger leadership, is that we need to remember our mandate. Way too often, we forget the main thing, and the story of Haggai is such that Haggai is coming and gently nudging and saying, hey, remember this task we had? Remember what we're supposed to be doing here, building the house of the Lord? We need to remember our mandate. That as Jesus left his disciples, he gave marching orders and he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I would argue that is still valid. That should still be our mandate. And whatever that we do here, it should always be about making disciples. It should always be about glorifying God in the way that we proclaim the message of the gospel of his son, Christ Jesus. And it is so easy as a church to get wrapped up in all of the other stuff, whether it's building a better platform online, or are we going to start our own record label, or do we have this publishing deal, or what does our building look like, or what is our beautiful facility, you know, all of this stuff, and we are so blessed here. This is a beautiful building. I am absolutely, it is my privilege to come and teach here each week. And I am blown away at the talent that we have of the people that are leading us in musical worship and investing in our children and our young people. I'm blown away by that. 
But we should never, ever, ever make those things the main thing. We should keep the main thing the main thing, going and making disciples of all nations. And for the record, I left off a phrase at the end of that mandate. Maybe some of you noticed. And that leads us well into my last point. We should always keep our eyes on God. The last phrase, the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples, and indeed as he is reminding us here and now, is behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. In the same way that Haggai was reminding the people, God is still here. God is still with you. It should be reflected in the songs that we sing. It should be reflected in our mandate. It should be reflected in all the bits and pieces and programs of our worship that God is still here moving in our midst. And I got to tell you, folks, as I read Haggai and I read what God is saying to the people there, and I look at this church, I want you to know, young people, I really believe the best days are still ahead for Hope Community Church. In the same way that God says, yet once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I am going to shake the sea and the dry land, and you will know that I am here in your midst. I believe wholeheartedly the best days of HCC are still ahead of us. And there will come a day when I and everyone else, we have long gone and we will hand off leadership to a younger generation, maybe some of you, maybe some that are downstairs or upstairs now, and I defy anyone in this room who will be cheering them on from heaven going, well, that's not how we used to do it. <laughs> no, because it at some point, we just have to forget the silver and the gold and the stuff and go, that's all God's. It is God's presence and only God's presence that is going to make this house great. And what we need to do is keep our eyes fixed on God. And that same song that the people sang, the text of Psalm 136, we're going to sing it now. And I want your attention to be drawn to the words forever. You are faithful. Forever you are strong. Forever you are with us. Because that is what God is doing here and now. And this place and the ministries of this church will be great because God is great and God is here and God is moving in this place. And that, and that alone is what makes this a special community of faith. God, thank you so much for all that you do in us. Thank you for your promise that you are with us, that you are faithful, that your love towards us will not change. I pray that we would be faithful too in proclaiming that same message of hope and grace and peace. And in everything, God, we long for the peace that you bring, that you would shake the heavens and the earth, that you would move in this place and that the glory of the days to come will be far greater than the glory that you are showing us even now, God. May it all be for your glory and to lift high the name of Jesus. Amen.